Well, we began this series um, by thinking about the, the character of fear, the, the many different faces of fear and the way that that, in different ways, affects all of us. Um, and then continued by, by thinking about the way in which uh, the Bible would have us combat fear and particularly saw the association between um, the, the frequent um, urging of Scripture, do not be afraid, and how again and again that is combined with, uh, I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Uh, and then uh, in our third session, uh, we looked at the, the links between uh, fear and faith and risk uh, and saw the, uh, the extraordinary way that that is played out in the risky behaviour uh, of Ruth uh, in uh, chapter 3 as she makes her move for Boaz. But actually, we could, we could just as much have... Uh, have, have explored that theme by looking at, at chapter 4 of the book of Ruth as well. Because there, there's a chapter where, where Boaz, in conversation with, with that other kinsman redeemer, uh, the other relative who, who could have chosen uh, to redeem uh, the land uh, and therefore redeem uh, Naomi and Ruth. Uh, but he says he won't do it. And the reason he won't do it is because it's too risky. Uh, here's, here's what he says, chapter 4, verse 6. I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. I, I can't jeopardise my own interests. I won't take the risk. So the guardian redeemer says to Boaz in verse 8 of chapter 4, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, funny business, removing sandals uh, to seal a deal instead of having a handshake. Uh, but there it is, that's what they did. But the point is that for Boaz, and, and, and we can only assume that the, the risk to Boaz was similar, but Boaz is prepared to take the risk and redeem the land uh, and, uh, uh, and takes Ruth to be his wife. And because of that, because he, because he risked in that way, his name is remembered forever as a hero of the faith uh, in the very line of the Messiah. And I think it's striking that, by contrast, the other kinsman redeemer, well, he disappears into history. We're not even told his name in the account. Uh, well, um, for this final session, I want to change tack. Because having looked carefully at, at, at the fear that needs to be set aside, uh, I want in, in our final um, uh, time together to, to look at a fear that, that actually needs fostering, needs cultivating, a fear that we don't need less of, but we need more of. Uh, it's what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Uh, and I want us to think about this, that, um, that this morning under, under three headings. Fear as the foundation for our wisdom, fear as the driver for our obedience, and fear as the only proper response to our God. Uh, but before we dive into that, why don't, why don't I lead us uh, in prayer? Uh, our Father God, as we come to consider um, what, what, it, what it means uh, to say that uh, we, we know uh, the fear of the Lord, uh, what scripture is urging upon us uh, when, it, when, it, when it calls us, uh, to, to fear you. 
uh, we pray that you, your spirit would be with us, your, uh, your word uh, would be open before us, and that we might uh, grow uh, in this very precious fear. Uh, and we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. So first then, fear as the foundation for our wisdom. Um, to, to come at this, I'd love to, to get you to think about somebody. Um, it's, it's a real person uh, from my past, a, a real incident uh, that, that sticks very clearly in my memory. Um, and um, I changed lots of details. But um, Mark uh, came to see me uh, and uh, asked for a conversation with me. And uh, the reason was that he was um, struggling with a relationship at work. Uh, his, um, his boss was treating him really badly. He was a teacher uh, and his boss was treating him uh, really badly. Um, what felt like sort of unreasonable demands, uh, terribly critical, um, adding things in at the last minute um, that really probably should have been the boss's responsibility to do, but they were coming on Mark. And, and it was just going on and on and, and nothing seemed to work whenever, whenever Mark tried to, to, to sort of push back. Um, it just got worse. And Mark was becoming um, more and more weighed down by it, um, depressed, um, dispirited, discouraged. Uh, it was affecting uh, sleep and appetite. It was affecting his, um, his service in the church. Um, his whole life was being, was being increasingly overtaken by this unreasonable um, behavior uh, by the boss. Well, I, I wonder where you would have gone with Mark if, um, if he'd come to you and spoken to you. Uh, I wonder where in Scripture you might have gone. Well, um, uh, I guess I, I could ask you to, um, to, to think about how you would help him. In fact, I think I might do that. Um, why don't we pause for a moment um, and think, um, uh, what would be your advice? Or, or is there a passage in the Bible uh, that you might turn to uh, in order to help him? Um, it just won't stop for long, but just uh, one or two minutes for you to, uh, to, to think that through for yourself or, or chat about it with others. Well, I wonder where that, that took you, um, either thinking through on your own um, or in conversation. I, I guess there's all sorts of places uh, that you might go. Uh, many of the verses that we looked at in, in our second session, you know, uh, don't be afraid for I am with you. Um, uh, go, to, go to Psalm 23, and um, the Lord is my shepherd, um, and uh, uh, the Lord comforts me in, in Isaiah. Uh, comfort, comfort, all sorts of places you could go uh, to speak uh, comfort uh, and reassurance uh, to, to, to Mark in his distress and his sense of um, feeling overwhelmed. Uh, could go to, to those Luke 12 passages uh, that we looked at as well as antidotes to fear, knowing that there's a, a Heavenly Father who cares for you. But I, I wonder if you would dare uh, to go to uh, these verses uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? 
But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. I want you to dare uh, go to those verses. Um, well, the, the way it went that day when Mark came to see me uh, is that um, literally the day before I'd been reading an article um, uh, written by Christopher Ashe. Um, and the title of the article was A Pulpit in My Study. Uh, and Christopher's point in that article was how differently he realises he is in danger of behaving, as it were, when he's in his study, having a one-to-one -one conversation with somebody, as opposed to how he might preach. And the, the, the illustration he used was 1 Peter chapter 2. And he said, look, in a, in, a, in a sermon, speaking from these verses, I might well uh, emphasise how this applies to us in the workplace. The slave-master analogy being sort of rightly sort of brought into to play in the here and now with, a, with an employee, employer, um, worker, line manager uh, relationship. Um, and how it is commendable to God to bear up under unjust treatment. Yeah, I, I might make that application in a sermon, but if somebody came to see me saying that they were suffering ill treatment, I'd be much more likely, he said in the article, to put my arm around his shoulder and say, oh, you poor thing, this is terrible. And, and just poor sympathy. So with that article ringing in my ears, what can I do? The very incident that Christopher was describing only the day before in the article was now happening in front of me. So with, with considerable nervousness, I said to Mark, listen, I don't know where this is going to go, um, but all I know is that we do need to look at this passage together and, and try and work out if it does have anything to say to you or not. So we looked it up and we read it and we talked a bit about it and we prayed and then off he went. And to be honest, I thought to myself, um, we'll probably never see him at church again. Um, as it happened, uh, he came back a, a few weeks later uh, to see me again. And, and what he had to say was that everything about the situation had been transformed. Everything was different. And, and as we talked it through, what, what became clear was that the difference had come about because, as it were, he'd got God back in God's proper place. See, the passage says, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters. And for Mark, suddenly, God was God again. A God to be feared, a God to be reverenced, a God to, who, pleasing that God, living for that God, became the key thing. And, and the boss, well, the boss just became a boss again. Now, that might not rule out pursuing some proper um, uh, confrontation uh, with the boss. Uh, might not rule out needing to, uh, to, to act in, in that kind of way. It's um, not my point. I, I, my point would be that e even if you did decide that that was the right and godly thing to do, you would be doing it with the boss just a boss instead of treating the boss as if they now fill your whole field of vision and you can't see anything else. God has been eclipsed uh, and the boss dominates. 
Well, for Mark, that had all flipped the other way around. Now God dominated. And out of fear of him, he was trying to find the right way to live. And everything had changed in his relationship. It, it was a seminal moment for me um, uh, early on in my pastoral ministry uh, to see how God used his word uh, so powerfully and so distinctly. At a spiritual level, that is how it works. It is only when we see God clearly that we will ever see everything else clearly as well. Because we need to see God clearly in order to be able to move correctly, think correctly, decide correctly, respond correctly. Because until God is in his proper place, nothing else is in their proper place at all. That, I think, is why the fear of the Lord is described as the beginning of wisdom. Because to, to fear God is to have God in his proper place, to know him as he truly is. And then everything else fits properly. Um, it, it's the first thing to have in place. Uh, Tim Keller um, says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in much the same way that the alphabet is the beginning of reading. Nothing more fundamental than realising that there is a God of might and power who stands outside his creation and by the might of his arm brings everything into being. And I, I am just a creature. And that I should be in awe of this mighty, awesome, powerful God. Now, at this point, um, um, I might normally uh, have a little rant about the way that we have begun to misuse the word awesome. Because um, I, I might point out that, that nowadays a, a chocolate ice cream can be awesome. A f mobile phone can be awesome. For certain people, even the Eurovision Song Contest can be awesome. All of which I would say means that we've lost a perfectly good word that used to describe being in the presence of, of, of something um, or someone who has such glory and power that we are utterly overcome in awe uh, of uh, that person. That's what I'd normally say, um, but, but I've, I've kind of stopped doing that because of, of one occasion when I was speaking in that way and, and, uh, and likewise sort of criticising the misuse of the word uh, awesome, um, but had failed entirely um, uh, to, to, to notice that immediately after the talk I was giving, I was going to be followed by a certain uh, children's singing duo um, who were due to perform. Uh, maybe you've heard of them. Uh, they're called Awesome Cutlery. Uh, no, I've never understood the name either. Uh, but what I did know is that after my extensive attack on the word awesome, um, when Gareth and Dan, um, also known as Awesome Cutlery, stood up, um, they introduced themselves saying, well, we're very glad uh, to be here to perform for you today, and we are reasonably, relatively good cutlery. Anyway, Awesome Cutlery notwithstanding, um, I'd, I'd love us to reclaim uh, the word awesome. Uh, not least, because um, we needed to capture the way that people responded to Jesus which again and again was with awe. You see it um, right through the, the book of Mark. 
Um, Jesus calms the storm in Mark chapter 4. And what happens after that? The disciples sort of look at Jesus in the boat and say, cool, Jesus, that was, that was awesome, man. No, no, no. They're terrified. And they say to one another, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Or Mark chapter 5, Jesus heals the demoniac. And the people from the town come out and they see the man sitting, dressed and in his right mind. And we're told they are afraid. And they plead with Jesus to leave their region. Mark chapter 6, Jesus walks on the water. And when the disciples see him, they cry out because they're terrified. Mark chapter 7, Jesus heals a deaf and mute man. And the people are overwhelmed with amazement. Mark chapter 9, where, where Jesus ascends the mount and is transfigured. And Peter to responds with gibberish. Should we make some, 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 uh, some places for you to be? Some booths or something, Jesus. He doesn't know what he's saying, we're told, because he was so frightened. Or, or what about the incident in chapter 10, where we're told in verse 32 that they're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples, we are told, were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. It's strange, actually, this incident in, in chapter 10, because compared to the others, what is there here to be frightened of? You get the idea of the possibility of, of fear when a storm is stilled, or demons cast out, or water walked on, or, or a body transfigured. This, this is just Jesus leading the way to Jerusalem. What, what's so scary about that? Well, Luke, in his version of this incident, describes Jesus as setting his face toward Jerusalem. And, and something that, that he may, in doing that, be picking up the language of Isaiah, chapter 50, where we read this. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Because that's what Jesus is heading toward. He's headed to Jerusalem, where he will suffer and die. And, and if anything deserves the language of awesome, then this is it. That the Creator God should, should set aside his glory and, and take on flesh and submit himself to a violent death, to, to all of the suffering and disgrace of the cross, that God should choose this. What kind of a God would do that? To use his power in this way, in the service of those who have betrayed and rebelled against him. If, if, if this doesn't evoke awe in us, that the Lord of hosts should choose to come in redeeming power in this way.
I don't know what will. We'll, we'll never truly know God. Therefore, never truly be wise until we are in awe of him. So first, the fear of the Lord, to be overcome with awe at the astonishing God of glory. Uh, That's the foundation for our wisdom. Now, before we get to um, our our second um, heading here, um, let me just get you to do a bit of thinking together by asking if you might just think about it. I think it's a slightly puzzling Old Testament verse. Um, It comes in in Exodus chapter 20, uh, immediately after the giving of the Ten Commandments. Um, And this is what we read uh, in verse um, 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen. But do not let God speak to us or we will die. And how does Moses reply? Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. It's a little bit puzzling, that verse, isn't it? Um, Don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you in order to keep you from sinning. How how does that all fit together, do you think? How does not being afraid and fearing and not sinning, how do they all fit together? And, And as you think about it, Remember that this comes just after the events of the Passover and the exodus from Egypt. Um, Take take a few minutes just to to pause and and think about that verse, be on the screen, um, and uh, reflect on it uh, for a few minutes on your own or with others. Well, again, I hope that was helpful, Uh, a bit of of reflection for you on on that verse. Let me tell you my thoughts on it Um, as as we had the second heading. Uh, The fear of the Lord is the motivation for our obedience. I think it goes like this. I think that that these verses coming after the giving of the Ten Commandments, after what was a a really awesome day uh, with thunder and lightning and all the rest, I think it's significant that that's the context context, uh, for um, verse 20. Moses saying to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And I think what we need to realise here is that being afraid and fearing the Lord, they're they're two very different things. Fear of the Lord isn't isn't a fear that means that that we're terrified of God. But fear of the Lord is that which keeps us from sin. Uh, See if I can um, capture something of that with a a memory I have. I, I was nine years old. And I um, had a head teacher at that time uh, who went by the, um, by the extraordinary name of Mr. Clutterbuck. Um, and Mr. Clutterbuck was, um, was an enormous man. Um, he, was, he was very large, uh, with a very large moustache, uh, with a very booming voice. Um, and he inspired awe uh, in a little nine-year-old boy like me. He, he had an authority that you could almost feel. And yet, Mr. Clutterbuck was kind. He used to take our football practice uh, at primary school 
and he used to call me by my nickname in those days, which was Midge. And I can still remember how uh, one time on a, on a school trip to Belgium, um, somehow I got into my mind that the, the grills that, um, that they have on the pavement in the continent, um, that they were a clever waste paper uh, collection system. Uh, and that somehow, instead of having waste paper bins, uh, everything got dropped uh, through these grills and then it got sort of scooped up underneath. Um, I don't know if I really believe that or it was just, but anyway, somehow I thought that. Um, so at one stage I had some sweet wrappers or something and I dropped them through the grill, feeling very clever. And Mr Clutterbuck saw me and he came over and he stood alongside and he said to me, Oh Midge, I really would have expected better from you. And even as I tell you the story, I can still hear his voice and I can still feel the impact of those words and how terrible I felt as I realised that I had disappointed him, that I'd let him down. Because this man who I, I, I held in such awe and respect, I felt terrible for having disappointed him. And I think that's what Paul is driving at. Uh, when we read in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, my dear friends, have you, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So this is not the, the fear of judgment that Paul is talking about here. No, he's, he's writing to believers. This, this, this fear and trembling isn't about what God might do to us if we misbehave. Now, if, if, I, if I dare put it like this, it's a fear of the hurt that we might do to him. Uh, John Calvin uh, once said this, the reformer, even if there were no hell, Calvin said, loving fear would still shudder at offending him alone. Even if there were no hell, loving fear would still shudder at offending him alone. That's where this close link between fear and obedience comes from. Not, not, not a terror of judgment, but such a sense of the, of the greatness and the glory and the goodness of God. And the, and the horror of disappointing the God who has loved us so richly. That we have such a desire to please him, such a dread of causing him grief, that we are drawn into obedience of him. Serve the Lord with fear, the psalmist says in Psalm 2, and celebrate his rule with trembling. Or as Deuteronomy puts it, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. To, to love the Lord like this, to, 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 to fear him like this, means that sin troubles us because the idea of grieving God troubles us. 
how do we cultivate um, such a fear? Uh, if we've seen first that fear is the foundation for our wisdom, and that fear is the driver then, secondly, for our obedience, then uh, see, finally, that fear is the only proper response to our God. If, if you've followed this seminar track through, you'll know that in a sense I've, I've ended up pulling you in, in two very different uh, directions. Um, yesterday, um, my accent was, was on the closeness of God, that, that he was with us and for us. Um, that, was, that was session two. Our God is like a greater Boaz. Jesus is like a greater Boaz who comes to our rescue when we have nothing of our own to give him and he pours out grace. A God who with all his might uh, defends us and, and, and keeps us, who fights our battles for us. And because of these things, there's reason to be comforted in our fears. But, but in this final session, I've wanted to take us in a, in a rather different direction by considering not that the closeness of God, but his otherness. Remembering, as it were, that he is not like us. That he is, as, as 1 Timothy chapter 6 puts it, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable life, and that he should be feared. And I guess you could reasonably ask, well, well, which is it? Is he the unapproachable God? Or is he the one who draws near to us in Christ? And, and I don't imagine um, you... Oh, well, I, I'm sure that you are already guessing the answer. Which is, of course, that he is both. He is utterly holy, entirely unapproachable uh, by sinful people like us. But he is simultaneously the God who has shown us grace. And it's no accident that these verses in Philippians that tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling follow immediately from verses that, that tell us that Jesus, being in his very nature God, made himself nothing and took the very nature of a servant. That's what God has done. That though holy, he has found a way through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, found a way to draw near to us, uh, to, to even come by his Spirit into us. That's what our God has done. Though holy, he's drawn near. He's both holy and near. And our task is to remember both of those things. Uh, a, a God who, who, who only... Um, accepts the most distinctly moral people, uh, would, I suppose, uh, stir us to, to, to some sort of slavish obedience through the fear of punishment. We thought it was all down to us to perform, um, and that that's what God was like. Um, that might draw us to obedience through slavish fear. And a God who was entirely benign uh, and accepts everyone without question, well, that sort of God might, I suppose, evoke in us a sort of warm affection. But the, the, the God that we believe in, the, the God that really is, is a God of such utter holiness that he can only save us 
through taking the right punishment for our sins in himself on the cross. And, and, and that God stirs up in us the God-fearing love of which the New Testament speaks. We need both of those things. We, we, we need the awareness that God is holy, that he should evoke awe in us, as well as the awareness that such a God loves us and draws near to us in Christ. And I guess as we, as we close now, uh, my question is, which way do you drift? You, you drift towards a, a casual, God is my mate kind of position, or, or towards a view of God that sees him as stern and distant. He's neither of those. He is something altogether more glorious. And he is to be feared. I'm going to suggest that, that we ought to close um, this seminar track with a, with a time of quiet as we contemplate on these things. We consider who this God is. God of might, God of power, God of glory. And yet a God who has come close to us in Christ. Uh, why not um, uh, come before the Lord? Uh, be quiet before him for a while now as you give thanks to him and ask that he would enable you to know him as he truly is. That by living in the fear of the Lord, you would be drawn into obedient service. I'll pray in a few moments after we've been quiet before him. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Our gracious God, we pray that we might know you as you are, God of glory, God of might, God of unapproachable holiness. Yet we might know you also as the God of grace who has drawn near to us in Christ and that these things would lead us to, to fear you, to serve you, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, reveal more and more of your glory. Reveal more and more of your grace. Reveal more and more of your holiness to us uh, that these things uh, would shape us uh, into the people that you would have us be. Uh, that we would uh, bring you glory uh, through the manner of our obedient faith. And we pray it uh, in Christ's name. Amen.